These are interesting times that we live in, to say the very least, but times that are, have been prophesied in Scripture from eons past. The rise of the Russian bear in the last days has been prophesied in Old Testament prophets, especially Ezekiel 38 and 39. The rise of China, a 200 million man army invading the Middle East someday. All of these things have been biblically prophesied uh, 2,000 years ago. In other words, God knows the end from the very beginning. He wants you and I to worry about nothing but to pray about everything. So as we, as we see uh, imperialistic designs by President Putin of Russia, know this, he needs Jesus. He needs to be delivered from whatever demons got a hold of his heart and mind. I don't know what that is, but he needs Jesus real bad. I know that people in Russia are praying for him. Christians, there are Christians in Ukraine praying. I've seen the same images that John was referring to of the saints. There are many Christians in Ukraine, and we should be praying for them. These are God's children, and asking God to protect and encircle his children is entirely profitable. We should do that. We must do that. Uh, they should be at the very top of, of your prayer list. But understand this. God had prophesied through Ezekiel 500 years before Christ the rise of Russia, he doesn't call them Russia because they, it was known as a different country back then. But Josephus reminds us that Ezekiel 38 and 9 Magog and Gog referred to the ancient Scythians that lived north of the Caucasus Mountains above the Black Sea. That is Russia today. So as you come to Ezekiel 38 and 39, you just have to understand who those nations are today in light of their ancient names and great scholars have done wonderful work. In fact, any study Bible that you grab will help you understand the rise of these eastern powers from China and the rise of Russia and the takeover of that part of the world. And eventually they will come together in the valley called Armageddon in Israel. It is coming. It is coming. How will this current conflict wind up? Only God knows, but I can tell you this. Jesus said, when you see wars and rumors of wars, look up, for your salvation draws nigh. We will not be here to see the battle of Armageddon, but we may be here to see regional conflicts and wars such as, as being played out on nationwide TV today. Don't fret. Don't worry. You say, but things are out of control at home as much as overseas. God knew that a long time ago as well. You say, well, I'm really concerned that gas may reach $10 a gallon. It probably will in the next three years. Understand that. Well, you, you thinking, well, Pastor Jim, that sounds like overreach to me. Nobody thought it would hit its present levels either. And they're paying $7.50 a gallon in some parts of California now. It's going to $10 a gallon. You'll remember three months ago, three months ago, I told you, Russia will invade Ukraine. It's a done deal. The Russian forces, nobody amasses a 200,000-man force on three sides of a sovereign nation if they don't intend to invade. That's far too expensive a war exercise. They weren't playing games. They were preparing for invasion. China, I told you three months ago, China will take Taiwan because they've seen the world's response to Russian aggression, and they have been emboldened to now make their move. If not now, when? So the, the global stage is in upheaval, but understand God is in control of these things. These things must happen if Armageddon is to happen. If the book of Revelation is to be fulfilled, these things have to come. It shouldn't unsettle us. It should increase our faith. It should pack our churches out. <laughs> it should cause people to drop to their knees in, in uh, the center of the city of Kiev in, in Ukraine and pray. Pray like they mean it. So if you want to know what's in the near future, read Ezekiel 38 and 39. All you have to do is identify those nations. Any study Bible will do that for you. If you have any questions, call the church, see me. Not a problem at all. Or go back and visit our our uh, online recordings of Ezekiel 38 and 39. These things were prophesied by God. Prophesied by God. Will it turn nuclear? At some point in time, yes. Because Revelation chapter 6, after the church, listen to me carefully, after the church is physically removed from planet Earth, 
the first of the seals that are broken in Revelation chapter 3 is the, the un, excuse me, Revelation chapter 6 is the unleashing of forces that have the capability of annihilating one quarter of the earth's population. That must be a nuclear event. That's a nuclear event. Russia is nuclear. There are so many rogue nations out there today that are nuclear capable, and I, I'm not here to give you an intelligence briefing on that. I am here to tell you that the Bible is more up-to-date on current events than tomorrow's headlines on CNN. God's got this. He knew it was coming. It has surprised you and I, but don't let it unsettle you. Let it shore up your faith. Pray more. There are people over there that need our prayers. At least as much as they need our javelin missiles and anti-tank weapons and, and stinger missiles to take down some of the uh, Russian aircraft that are up there. God is bigger. Amen. God is bigger. I'm going to be praying about this. Uh, some of you, I'm already thinking, some of you are going to turn to Ezekiel 38 and 39. You go, wow, I'm so overwhelmed. There, I'll be praying about whether to take you through Ezekiel 38 and 39 next week. Uh, I thought about doing it this morning. But I thought it was more necessary to encourage you. And, and that comes to us first and foremost out of this book of Philippians that we're in this morning, chapter 2, if you would like to turn there in the New Testament. Because Paul was writing at a time when Roman oppression, not Russian oppression, but Roman oppression was global at the time in the whole Mediterranean world. Understand that every nation had been destroyed, their armies decimated by the legions of Rome. They had done a remarkable job. They stood up to the European frontier. They were fighting the Goths and the Visigoths on the, the Germ Germanic front. It wasn't called Germany back then either, but we understand who those people groups are. So that there has been a region of instability in that part of the world since time began. Since time began. God knew it. So Paul writes from a perspective to a church in Greece that had already been conquered by an outside agent. It didn't end their faith. It was the beginning of their faith. It's what drove them their knees to realize there is something greater than the Roman occupation of the current world that we live in or the Russian occupation today of Ukraine. There is something greater. His name is God. He is in charge of all of these things. And that's where our peace comes from. It's not from anyone's victory, plus or minus, on one side of a fence or another. Our hope is in God. Our peace must come from God. If your heart is not at peace this morning, do a, do a little heart check on where your faith is at. Are you in the Word of God? Are you praying? Are you close to Him? Or are you just doing the best you can? People that stress out, you know, <laughs> they turn to all sorts of things. Between the, before they turn to God, they turn to eating, stress eaters, and they put on 20 pounds. Oh, that'll help. That'll help. That's obviously the answer to the Ukrainian situation this morning, or whether NATO will be drug into this, or whether this thing's going to become nuclear. It's one thing to say that when one is attacked, one member of NATO, that all are, are attacked. But I remember a couple of presidents back there, they said then that there was a red line in the sand that Syria couldn't cross. They did, and we did nothing. So there's a lot of saber rattling on both sides about how tough we are going to be against in the face of Russian aggression. But I got to tell you, God is greater than all of these things. God is greater than all of these things. So I don't have to worry about them. I don't have to be a superior military analyst although I enjoy that stuff tremendously and the technology uh, of, that comes uh, with the equipping of our forces and things like that. But I understand ultimately our God is the God of armies. He is called Yahweh Sabaoth, which means the Lord of armies, the armies of heaven, the armies of earth. Remember, he sent one angel one time in the year 701 when Jerusalem was encircled by a hostile regime known as the Assyrians, the mother of all terrorists. The Assyrians, they had encircled Jerusalem in the year 701 and Hezekiah was driven to his knees. He got Isaiah and said, look at what's happening. We're encircled by these guys. And then it says, then they went into the house of the Lord. They went into the house of the Lord. They prayed. They laid out this threatening letter from Rob Shaka, the military commander of the Assyrians. And they said, God, you see what blasphemies are laid out? This is a godless country led by godless leaders. We're praying, Lord, we can do nothing against this army. It's overwhelming. 
There's 186,000 Russian troops on Ukraine's border. In the year 701 B.C., God sent one angel to protect his people in the capital of his nation, Jerusalem, and one angel put 185,000 Assyrians to death in a day. In a day. These Russian forces, all God's got to do is send one of the puny guys up there, one of the small angels, you know, and, uh, to do his bidding. And, and they could be wiped out in an instant. And if God allows their presence to continue, he has a reason, a design, and a purpose. doesn't want us worrying about it. I know what God has historically done. I know what he's capable of doing. What he wants to do is take charge of your heart this morning. Let not your hearts be troubled. You have trusted in God. Jesus said, trust also in me, for in my Father's house are are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And when it's done, I'm coming back to take you so that where I am, you may be also. Let not your hearts be troubled. He said it twice in John chapter 14, the opening three verses, because it is what we are most prone to. Worry and fretting about global situations that we have no control over. You say, I'm frustrated with the rate of inflation. Aren't we all? And it may get 10 times worse before it gets better. Depends on what our current administration plans on doing. Pray for them. Pray that they would make wise decisions. But understand Paul's perspective in writing the Philippian church. They're right in the middle of Roman occupation. They're, the Romans are the bad guys. This is God's town, God's city, God's Mediterranean world, and yet he has allowed the Roman occupation of those lands for sovereign reasons and purposes we may not ever completely know until Christ comes back. The issue is is our faith. Do we trust God? Do we trust God? Paul is in jail for his faith. You and I are not in jail. Many Christians may face imprisonment over in Ukraine, whatever other nations that Russia may decide to try to reincorporate into the ancient Russian Empire. Maybe he's going after the Baltic states next. They are members of NATO, but I'm not sure that means as much today as it did in in, uh, 1955. We can tell those tiny Baltic states that we've got their back, do we? Are people willing to engage in nuclear confrontation over three little countries up there who most people couldn't find on a map if you put a gun to their head that used to belong to the Soviet Union? Would NATO really be willing to face global thermonuclear disaster over that? I doubt it. God's in control, though. God's in control, not NATO, not Russia, not Ukraine, not the Baltic states. Things are unfolding uh, even as we speak over there that uh, we are only beginning to understand now. But Paul, understanding what foreign occupation looks like, still wrote with a note of joy unspeakable in Philippians chapter 2. If you would look at verse 12 with me, this whole section that started all the way back in the previous chapter, verse 27, it's Paul's exhortation to these Philippian believers to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It was a country under siege, under Roman occupation, and Paul says, keep your eyes on God, not the Romans, not the occupation, not the threats. They didn't know that the destruction of Jerusalem was coming in 70 AD when their beloved temple would be burned to the ground, millions slaughtered. They didn't know that at the time of Paul's writing. But they did know this, God is in control. God has got this. In fact, we already read where Paul said, you know what, here's my perspective. For me to die is gain. I'll be with Jesus. To live may be profitable service in the ministry, but even if my life is taken from me by these oppressive Romans, doesn't matter. God, that, God's in control of these things. If he takes me home, fine. If he doesn't, that's fine. Your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. Doesn't your word say that? Your life is not your own. So whether we live or die, the challenge is, do we do it for Christ? Do we pray? Do we keep our eyes on him? Or do we fret and stew and worry and try to do the best we can on our own? 
Live for Christ is the exhortation. And in light of Jesus' example for us and his humility, his love, his obedience that were outlined previously in chapter 2, Paul says in verse 12 then, therefore, because of Jesus' example, because of what he has done, always ask, what is the therefore there for? In light of Christ's humble and submissive attitude, Paul says, beloved, and I wish they hadn't translated it, my dear friends, because it doesn't say my, it doesn't say dear, and it doesn't say friends. What it says in the original Greek is, beloved. The root word is agape, love of God. He reminds them, they're more than dear friends. They are dear friends, to be sure, but they're more than that. He's reminding them, you, despite your situation, despite the global chaos that is out there, despite the fact that we're under the heel, the brutal heel of Rome here in in Philippi, Greece, despite all of that, know this, God's in control. Christ has already gone on before us in these things. Act like Christians. Stand up as men and women of God because you are. And then he tells them something that many have have misunderstood. Therefore, beloved, loved of God, and therefore you love each other, beloved as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continuously continue, I just want to be accurate to the Greek verb, continuously continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. A lot of people struggle with this. Is this a work salvation? I got to work hard to get into heaven? Nope. Nope, nope, no, no. That's not what it says. It says work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. Christ has already done the work. All you have to do is put all of your faith, trust, hope, and confidence in Jesus. You don't have to work. If you did, it wouldn't be good news. It wouldn't be the gospel. There's no good news in you. I hope you work your... Here's the deal. If you think that you have to work your way into heaven, you'll never know if you're saved or not because you'll never know if you worked hard enough or not. Is it enough to get me into heaven? If you're on a works mentality, you're thinking that if I just... If my good deeds outweigh my bad, maybe I can get into heaven. Nope. Can I just clear that up for you? You will not get into heaven on your own righteousness. That's why Jesus came, to offer you his. You can add nothing to that. His sacrifice was perfect. He perfectly kept the law that you and I did not. That's why you need Jesus, and that's why you are lost without him. There's no in-between. This morning, every single man, woman, and children in this building is saved or lost. There's no in-between. You're either going to heaven because you have your faith in Jesus Christ and what he already accomplished, or you hope you're going to heaven, hoping that your good deeds outweigh your bad, and they don't because that's not God's standard. What is God's standard? Perfection. And without the perfection of Christ, none of us is going to heaven. So the whole previous part of this chapter is all about Paul's encouragement. Because Christ was submitted to the Father, we should submit to Christ. Because Christ's example was one of obedience to the Word of God, you and I should be obedient to the Word of God, not because we're working our way into heaven, but because we're already heaven-bound and just want to please Him and live the best life possible. It's not a works trip then. In fact, it takes all of the work stuff off of you. Don't try harder to be a better Christian. Just look to Christ more and let him make you a better Christian. It starts on the inside, not the outside. You can't work harder. Oh, I just want to work harder. Let me tell you how you can't do that. Are there, can we just be real for a second? Are, are there some people in life that you struggle with? They push your buttons They just get under your skin. And there's nothing you can do about it because they're your boss or your next-door neighbor or your mom or your sons and daughters, your teenagers. (sighs) Wouldn't it be great if you didn't have any buttons? Wouldn't it be great if you trusted Christ so much these things didn't bother you at all? He's got this. She's got this. I can rest because Jesus has already done all of the work for me. So I can encourage you to just trust in him. Be saved. 
Do you know that you know that you know if you were to die in the next five minutes you'd be in heaven with Jesus? Do you know that positively? Here's what I don't want to hear from anybody. Well, I hope I'd get to heaven. Well, I hope you're not a dork. I hope you're not a goldfish. There's a lot of things I hope. That's not going to get you to heaven. It's not the kind of hope we're talking about. The Bible uses the word hope to mean a confident assurance. I am going to heaven. Why? Because it ain't on my righteousness. Jesus has already paid the price. I believe in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? Then you can rest in him. He's got this. Yeah, but suppose Russia cyber attacks us. He already did. Remember the colonial pipeline that went down? Now, somebody was stupid enough yesterday to say on the national news, well, if we do cyber warfare against Russia, that's considered an act of war. Really? Then why didn't we consider it an act of war when they hacked our pipeline and shut it down for two weeks? There's no shortage of hypocrisy in our, in our land today when people say, oh, that's an act of war. Really? They did it to us. Where's the retaliation? Well, there was none. So what are we supposed to do? Write letters to the White House? I've written a hundred. It doesn't help. <laughs> More helpful, I believe, is prayer. Pray. Pray. Pray without ceasing. That means don't ever stop. I hope your prayer life is more than putting your head on the pillow at night and going, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. But if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. E Dominus Fubiscum, eat your biscuits, go to bed. That's not, if that's your prayer life, you don't have a prayer life. You've mimicked a few school uh, nursery rhyme things that we used to learn when we were kids when Christianity was allowed in schools, but that won't get you to heaven. Pray and pray without ceasing earnestly. And that's what Paul will encourage the church to do. As you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, he says in verse 12, but now much more in my absence. Continuously continue to let your salvation work out. Let God work in you, on you, so God can work through you. It's got to start in here. It's got to start in here. It can't start with the outward. Once you allow Jesus Christ to do a work in your heart, he begins changing your heart, and then it is worked out in your daily experience. That's what it means to work out your salvation. And I found out in the original language, it's in the present tense, which means continuous and ongoing action. You haven't arrived yet, but you already knew that, didn't you? As a Christian, you're still at work under construction. That's fine. That's fine, I won't excuse your sin, but I understand your imperfections. I've got plenty of my own. It's worded in such a way in the original language. When he says work out, it's put in the middle voice, which means God will work with you. Inside, God will work with you. The middle voice always makes me a co-participant in the action. God will do his part. In fact, he already did. He sent his son. He's given us his Holy Spirit. We've got the Word of God. We're without excuse. You can be as close to God as any person on this planet if you want to be. What's stopping you? Can I tell you? Your flesh. Your sinful, fallen, old nature. That's what's stopping you. So what's the answer to that? Put a nail in that coffin. Bury that puppy. You're a new creation in Christ. Jesus, all things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Start acting like you're a new creation in Christ. Believe it with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. Look to him. He'll take care of it. He'll take care of it. I, I worry. Worry, worry don't, don't, doesn't accomplish anything. I'm a co-participant in this action. I will read my Bible. I will pray. I will fellowship with the saints. I will sing to his praise. I will do all of these things, and I will endeavor to do them 24 hours a day. I'm a co-participant with, with God in the working out of my salvation, not working for. Understand the difference. It is huge. It's not a work trip that we signed on to. The brilliant New Testament Greek scholar A.T. Robertson eloquently put it this way, and I couldn't put it better, so I need to quote him. Quote, Paul has no sympathy with a cold or dead orthodoxy that knows nothing of struggle and growth. 
He exhorts as if he were an Arminian in addressing men, and he prays as if he were a Calvinist in addressing God and feels absolutely no inconsistency between the two attitudes. Paul makes no attempt to reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility, but boldly proclaims both as the word of God. They are. So in light of that, what Paul will say next, oh, is so encouraging. Continue, he says, verse 12, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, a holy and reverential awe of God. That's what it means. For it is God. Here's your highlighter passage. You say, if you were, verse 13 is it. Got your highlighters? Show me your highlighter. Got a highlighter? You slackers. You sl- get a highlighter. You need a highlighter. And verse 13 is it for you. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God is working in you. Let him <laughs> seek his face. God is at work in you. Now, how does God reveal his will to you? As this salvation is being worked out in you, the number one question I typically get is, how does God reveal his will to me? He reveals his will to you through his word, in your daily Bible reading, God will sometimes speak to you in powerful ways, and you're just in your daily devotional reading of the Bible that day. Sometimes he can do it. He can speak to me through his Holy Spirit inside of me. And I know it's this Holy Spirit when it is always in conformity with the Word of God. His Holy Spirit prompts me to share my faith. You're shopping for cocoa puffs at Walmart, and, and you're reaching something on the top shelf, and, and you hear some woman next to you sobbing. And, and you go, excuse me, are you okay? Is there anything I can pray for you about? And right there in Walmart, you may find yourself in a divine appointment you didn't know was on your calendar. But you have to be open to that. You have to look for those opportunities. Keep your eyes wide open to where God is leading because often God will lead through your circumstances of where he puts you and when he puts you with whom. You just have to be a willing vessel at that moment. Sometimes a lady's crying just because she's only this tall and can't reach the cocoa puffs on the top shelf. That's okay. God made me six foot two. I can grab those for you, little lady. There you go. And I feel good about it. That's fine. And sometimes... There's somebody that just needs a, to hear from God. And you want to be open to that at work, at home. When you're out and about all over the times, all over the place, God can use you in times and places that often have just left me astonished. God is at work with you. He reveals himself through his word, his Holy Spirit, sometimes through other people. You know, my wife all the time says things to me, and I go, man, I hadn't thought of it that way. That's a, that's a thank you. And that's the Lord speaking to me through my godly wife, through godly people. You have to be open to that. Sometimes God will just put an overwhelmingly strong desire on your heart that lines up with his word. Give you just, just one, for instance, uh, in my own, own personal life. Uh, like God's call on my life. I was uh, on the Colorado Springs Fire Department finishing out a career there. I had just finished my pre-med degree at UCCS, thought I was headed to medical school, but offered it up to the Lord. I, I remember praying, Lord, I'll stay on the fire department if you want me to. You want me to be a physician? That's fine. I was accepted at uh, UC Health Center uh, up in Denver, the Health Center Sciences Medical School up there. Or... I can do anything you want me to do. And, and God just put on my heart, how about seminary? And I thought, seminary? Why in the world would I want to go to seminary? No, no, no. I already know, Lord. It's, it's either the fire department or, or medical school. I, I already got, it, got you figured out. But God, open and closed doors. Open doors you want me to walk through, closed doors you don't want me walking through. And all of a sudden, the year's leave of absence from the fire department that I had taken to finish my pre-med degree at UCCS, I went back and, and told him, well, the circumstances have changed. I'm going to be back on the fire department for a while until I hear back from medical school. They said, well, oh, Mr. Etheridge, your leave of absence was mistakenly processed as a resignation. You're no longer on the fire department. What? And I heard the door slam. 
And God spoke to my heart and said, you, you, you're the one who said, closed doors you don't want me walking through, so I shut that door. Okay, I guess I'm going to medical school. That's fine. I can do that. And I had my interviews up there, and I took my eight-hour medical college admissions test. Things were all fine and hunky-dory, and then I get a call from medical school. Oh, Mr. Etheridge, uh, we have lost your entire transcript package and your admission and everything else here at medical school. We can't find you anywhere. This has never happened before in the history of the medical school, but we can't find your folder anywhere. And I said, well, I was already accepted, so what's the big deal? Well, we can't even prove that. So all we can tell you is try again next year. You're not in medical school either. And I heard the door slam. And God said, you, you asked me to do this. So I said, Lord, you can't, mean, you can't mean seminary. I'm probably the most unqualified person on planet Earth uh, to be a seminarian or a pastor. But there was this desire gnawing at my heart. And so I said, okay, I'm going to drive. So I drove out to Costa Mesa, California and talked with Chuck Smith who started this whole Calvary Chapel thing. And I said, well, here, here's my story. You think God's called me to go to, to seminary? Here's every sin I ever committed in my life. Do you think God could still use me as a pastor? And Chuck Smith said, yeah. God's called you to be a, a shepherd of his people, a pastor. Just love them, just feed them. I said, well, what do I do next? And he said, seminary. He's a good godly man. Chuck, talking to Chuck Smith one-on-one -on -one is sometimes a strange experience because uh, he will sit there and for 30 seconds, says nothing. What's he doing? He's praying. He's praying about what to say and how to answer. And I said, well, what seminary do I go to? And he said a non-denominational sem seminary like... Uh, like Talbot Theological Seminary here in town. That was the only school that he recommended. And so I, I applied to Talbot, and I told him every sin I'd ever committed. I said, would you still accept me? And they go, yeah, sure. They're forgiven, right? Brought in the blood of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm trying to talk my way out of seminary here. I'm, God's not closing that door. And what grew in my heart was this ever-increasing desire. I've got to teach. I've got to learn. I've got to grow. I know that this is God's will for me. He shut every other door. And this desire just grew and grew and grew like a sun going supernova. And it just, it just exploded. I, I just gave in to it. But it was one of those desires that's consistent with his word, confirmed by godly people, confirmed through prayer, and confirmed through circumstance. That's how I knew it was the will of God. God was doing what? He was working out his will in and through me. Now, that was a big, hairy step. No medical school, no fire department, no career. You just what? Go sell everything that you have and come and follow me? Yeah. Everybody can quote that passage, but have you ever done it? You ever quit your career, sold your house, given away everything you've got to go out to California with just enough money to get you through one semester of seminary, believing that God will get you the rest of the way home? I mean, that's the biggest step of faith I ever took, but I knew that I knew that I knew that was God's call on my life, and I had this growing desire. And I was in seminary. I was serving full-time at, at, at Costa Mesa down there in praise and worship and stuff like this, and, and yet I had this growing desire. It was almost a panic attack. I've got to teach. I've got to teach. And I told that to Chuck, and he said, okay, I'll give you teaching opportunities. And, and there's home fellowships, and we started a home fellowship in the apartment complex we run. You remember that? It was, I had to teach. And God said, great, teach. Teach, do it. I just love that. He gave me what? The desires of my heart. That's what the, the Psalms talk about, God giving you the desires of your heart, but only when they become God's desires. He's not interested in giving you the desires of your flesh. You know what I'm saying? God is not going to make you comfortable. In fact, steps of faith are by nature and definition uncomfortable. That's why they're called steps of faith instead of steps of sight. 
They're stretching experiences. You ever felt like you were rubber band in the hands of God? And he's stretching you. Oh, he's stretching you. He's stretching you. you go, oh, man, I don't know if I can take much more of this trial, this test, this circumstance in my life. And God, oh, he's just stretching me. I, I think if he stretched him any more, I'm going to break. I'm, I just can't do this. And God says, oh, sure you can. Watch this. And it takes your breath away, and you go, I didn't die. It's okay. I still have food on the table. I, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing, but God's provided. Hallelujah. That's where faith leads you. It's leading you to believe more than your eyes see or your mind can comprehend. Faith is bigger than the universe. It unleashes the hand of God, and you become a free vessel of blessing to use any way he sees fit. It could be at Walmart, it could be seminary, it could be the fire department, it could be medical school, it could be right where you're at. Can God use you there? Anybody you know at your workplace that needs prayer? Boy, it got quiet then. You're working with pagans, you're overwhelmed with pagans. What are you supposed to do? Badmouth them? Well, that hasn't helped you so far, has it? How about praying for them? How about telling them God loves them? How about telling them they they need Jesus, the Son of God who died on the cross for their sins? We live in a land and a day of opportunity. Our faith is being stretched as a nation as we look at things beginning to increasingly get out of control. We look at the global situation. That offers us no hope, no peace, no confidence. Jesus said when you begin to see all of these things come to pass, wars, rumors of wars, look up. For your salvation draws nigh. Can I tell you, the next important event on the church calendar is not the men's prayer breakfast this Saturday at 9 o'clock, which I'd like you to be there for. Next event on the church calendar, the biggie, is the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's the important date you want on your calendar. He's coming soon, and the signs of the times are all around us to remind us of that fact. In light of verse 13, because it is God who is at work inside of you and I, Because he is putting in us the desire to will and to act according to his good purposes. It's like Paul when he one time said to the church at Corinth, he said, the love of Christ compels me. It drives me. In fact, I I find something like that in Mark uh, where he talks about Jesus uh, right after his baptism. Mark uses a unique word to describe Jesus being driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil powerful word that Mark and only Mark uses, not like driven there in a car or he called Uber and they drove him out into the desert. No, no, no. Jesus was compelled. He was driven by the Spirit of God to do what he did. Not because the desert's comfortable, they are not. Great places to learn lessons though. You need deserts in your life. Maybe you're in one right now. Don't despair. It's a time to deny the, f- the flesh and trust in the living God. It means to be compelled utterly. That's what God wants to do in your life. He just wants you to relinquish control. Here's why. When you're in control, you wreck the car on every corner. It's a disaster. With you driving, it's like asking a three-year-old on steroids and caffeine to take control of the wheel. It's not going to be pretty. God just wants you to give up. Let let go and let God, is the way Fenelon put it. Godly man of a generation long past. Let go and let God, because God is working in, on, and through me. Verse 14 in the original language starts with the word everything. In Greek, you want to make something real important, you put it at the first of the sentence. That's the only purpose that word order serves in the original Greek language. And it starts off, verse 14 does, Everything, not most things, not the things you want to give up anyway. It says everything. Do everything, say everything, Everything. without complaining or arguing. It's the word of the Lord. To those of you that have been complaining and arguing, hear the voice of the Lord. Stop it. Are there any questions? It's pretty unambiguous that most of the Word of God is. 
stands first in this sentence. Don't do anything in a complaining, murmuring, or grumbling way. No critical spirit allowed here is what the Lord is saying. And here's why. God doesn't complain or argue. He's in our hearts. Why do we complain and argue? If we're growing in Christ's likeness, we should be looking more and more like him with every passing day, shouldn't we? God doesn't complain or argue. He's in here. Don't complain and argue. Like father, like son. Be like dad. He's in you. He's working on you, in you, so he can work through you. Why do we complain and argue? Because we have an old sin nature, our flesh. Selfishness, fleshly behavior. Either we don't like something or we didn't get our way. Complaining is kind of the flesh's way of of dealing with an irritation. Don't complain about it. Find a solution. Find a solution. Be a part of that solution. Be a part of the answer, not part of the problem. Nothing is gained by argument. You want to be a peaceable person. You want to grow into that person that doesn't have buttons. That does. Love is not easily offended. Love is not easily angered. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, when I do things and I'm complaining, God usually speaks to me and says, well, why are you doing it, Jim? Well, I'm doing it for you, Lord. And he always says, then quit your murmuring or quit doing it. Don't complain. Don't complain. Do it with a joyful heart. God doesn't want any griping service. Whatever you do in word or deed, do for the glory of God, Scripture tells us. Do it as unto the Lord and do all things. Do everything without murmuring, grumbling, or complaining. Let me illustrate. A man decided to join a seminary, a monastery actually, and one of the rules of the group was that you were only allowed to speak two words every 10 years. Strict order. At the end of the first 10 years, he said, bad food. Okay, but that's not why you're there. Ten more years went by, and his two words that were then uttered, hard bed. Finally, on his 30th anniversary at the monastery, with all of the brothers in attendance, he thundered, I quit. And the priest in charge responded, you might as well. All you do is complain anyway. If you're only using two words every 10 years, they don't want to be words of complaint. Don't do that. Don't do that. Say only those things that build up and encourage and edify. That's what Scripture says. That's the rule of your life. Zip the lips sometimes, man. Don't let your flesh come out of your mouth. If you've got to hold your breath, count to 10, whatever it takes, pray during those 10 seconds, fine. But if I complain, I argue with circumstances God has allowed in my life. I don't want to complain or murmur or grumble. God has allowed it in my life for my personal growth and benefit. He has allowed us so to complain against circumstances or people that God has put around me is to complain against God himself and the things that he's put in my life. I don't like what you're doing. I want you to knock it off right now. Hmm. The corollary to not murmuring and grumbling is don't argue. Don't argue. Not with cults, not with Calvinists, not with enemies, not with friends and calling it something else besides arguing. Don't argue. Just forfeit the argument up front. Okay, you win. You win. Honey, I want to paint the entire house inside fluorescent yellow. Okay. I'll just wear sunglasses inside. <laughs> There's a lot of things that just don't matter. Color of my house on the inside, whatever. Color on the house, whatever. I'm just glad to have roof over my head. Well, we're having generic macaroni and cheese again. I'm just glad I got food. <laughs> I don't care what kind of food. Obviously, all food agrees with me. <laughs> Nobody's starving at my house. He goes on in verse 15 then. 
Do everything without complaining or arguing. Here's why. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. What a beautiful picture. That's how God sees you when you walk in obedience to what we just read. Through the display of a non-complaining spirit, we show ourselves to be true followers of God. We don't complain. That should be the hallmark of our faith in Christ Jesus. I'm not talking about you being absolutely perfectly sinless, but I, what we should see in each other is a wholehearted devotion, an unmixed devotion to God, His will, God's way, and doing it all by the power of God's Holy Spirit because we're totally and completely yielded to Him. Can I tell you, the best place for your light to shine is in the darkest spot in America. Didn't Jesus say, let your light so shine? Well, the best place for a birthday candle to put out a whole lot of light is in the very darkest place. That's why God has you there, because that's where the light is needed most. Verse 16, as you hold out, as you literally hold forth the word of life to other people, you are a living testimony of Jesus Christ, your nature, your calm, your devotional life speaks volumes to the word without you opening your mouth. They see your good behavior. They see what's important to you. They see your character and your nature. And we're holding forth the word of life to others. We're quick to share our faith. We're quick to say, is there something that I could, I could pray for you about? And again, it's a present active participle in original language. Keep holding out that word of life to the world. Keep holding it out. Keep praying for them. Keep praying for brothers and sisters like in Ukraine that are under assault this very hour. Verse 17, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering, Paul says, uh, on the sacrifice and, and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me because God's at work. The world looks to be in chaos, but God's got it all factored into his grand plan. Don't despair. Look up. Pray. Don't argue. Don't complain. Simple things like this. And then he points out the, uh, his young protege, Timothy, in verse 19. I hope the Lord Jesus, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. In other words, I'm sending this young protege that started with me on missionary trips, my second missionary trip in south-central Turkey. Uh, Acts chapter 16 records his conversion. He had a Greek father, a Jewish mother, and he's with Paul in Rome. We learned back from chapter 1 and verse 1 here in, in Philippians. I have no one else like him. And what an indictment this is. I have no one else like Timothy who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. He cares. He actually cares for you guys. He's got the same heart and mind that God put in me. He loves you guys. He cares for you guys. He really has your best interests at heart and mind. And I've got nobody else like him. Wouldn't you like God to be able to say that about you? You're, you are my young protege, the Lord says. I'm using you for my glory. And I'm going to send you all over the place at all sorts of inconvenient times. And I'm going to do and say things in and through you that are just going to be remarkable. If you'll just trust me, just be led of me. So young Timothy was willing to let Paul send him all the way back to Philippi from Rome to take this message of hope and encouragement and thanksgiving to them. So he says, I hope to send Timothy to you quickly. Verse 22, or verse 21, excuse me. For everyone who looks out for his own interests but not those of Christ Jesus. Verse 22, but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. He's proved himself. Interesting wording in the original language. It's to assay the test of metals, to see, to examine their purity. Interesting word. And then he says in verse 23, he says, therefore, I am sending him to you as soon as 
I see how things go with me, referring to his trial there, verse 24, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Uh, The trial was dismissed. He sat there under house arrest for two years, but his accusers never showed up from Jerusalem, never showed up. And so after two years, he was released from his first Roman imprisonment and was then able to retrace his footsteps on previous journeys just to encourage the, the churches again. And then he lists another co-fellow worker with him, verse 25. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who was also your messenger. In other words, he had brought the financial gift from Philippi, Greece, all the way to Rome and gave it to Paul so he could pay his rent on his rented house while he awaited trial. Common Greek name, he was a Greek convert to the faith. His name meant devoted to the Roman goddess Aphrodite. He'd obviously become a Christian and was now in the service of the Lord. And he had brought this gift from the church at Philippi all the way up to Paul. And he said, I'm sending him back to you. Uh, He'd become very sick. He almost died. He almost died. Look at what Paul says about him. I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphrodites, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, who also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Verse 27, because he was, indeed he was ill and almost died. But Paul had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Now, what's amazing to me is that Paul had been blessed with the gift of healing. And he had healed innumerable people throughout his ministry. And yet, he couldn't heal Epaphroditus. There is a brand of theology out there that says it is God's will that none of us ever get sick, that we're all wealthy, healthy, and prosperous. That it's God's will for you to be rich and never to have another sickness in your life. Really, what about Epaphroditus? He's a godly man. He's a church courier. He's a servant to Paul. He got sick and Paul couldn't do nothing about it. He almost died. And it wasn't because he lacked faith. It wasn't because he was up to his eyeballs in sin. God allowed that situation. God does not always heal. I believe in miraculous healing. I've been healed many times myself. I've seen God do miracles in our congregation in healing others. But that does not mean that he is mine to command, and I command you be healed in Jesus' name. He didn't give me that authority. That authority is heaven sent, given when he chooses. But not everyone is healed. I don't know why. I just know that Paul had the gift of healing, but he couldn't heal Epaphroditus. He couldn't heal his son in the faith, Timothy, and wrote him later on and said, Timothy, I want you to take a little wine for your stomach's sake. And the word wine is oinos, which means fermented wine, not grape juice. That's a different Greek word. In other words, take something that will settle your tummy down a little bit. Did he have irritable bowel syndrome or stomach ulcers? I don't know, but Paul couldn't heal him. I don't doubt at all that Paul had laid hands on him, that Paul prayed for him. Paul did everything biblically required of him, and yet he still had a stomach issue. Paul had one of his own. Remember this thorn in the flesh that he talks about? He said, three times I asked God to heal me. And then to paraphrase it, in a nutshell, God said, no. My grace is sufficient. Paul could heal others, but he couldn't heal himself. I don't know why. He had this tremendous ministry, this gift of healing, miracles wrought, and yet as Epaphroditus was almost dying with his illness, Paul can't do anything about it. And I, I don't know why, but I know this, God doesn't always heal everybody. Why is it that God heals some and others? I'm not sure, but this I do know, and I need you to listen to me most carefully. The last thing in the world, the sick need, is for you to come in and say, well, brother, well, sister, there must be something wrong with you, or there must be some sin in your life, and that's why you're sick. If you just had more faith, you could just walk right off that bed and say, I don't feel bad at all. That's heresy. 
I'm sorry, I don't know what your background is, but I want your background to become biblical. Some people are not healed in Scripture. End of the story. I don't know why that's in God's hand. But to tell a sick person, well, you just don't have enough faith. If only you believed God, you could get up out of this bed and walk. You've probably been making some negative confession. Don't say, I feel bad. Say, I feel great. You try that on COVID-19. Try, you just try that when you're throwing up and you've got 104-degree fever. You just try, yeah, I'm, I feel great. I think that's a lie. I don't feel great. When I'm sick, I tell my wife, I feel sick. I feel sick. I'm, I, I'm, I know that God can heal me. I ask God to heal me. My wife, who loves me so much, says, stop whining. Man up, buttercup. Suck it up. Actually, my wife's the greatest nurse there is. But I cannot tell her a lie. I can't have a 103-degree fever and be throwing up and have diarrhea and tell my wife, honey, I feel great. I'm just confessing that. That's stupid. I mean, that's just a denial of reality. That has nothing to do with faith. That's just stupid. Guys know that in, innately. When I'm sick, I, say, I feel sick. God does heal. I know that. I believe that. I've been healed many times. But God doesn't always heal everybody. I wish he did. Going to the hospital and pray for people, and some got healed and some died. I don't know why. I know that he's God, and I know he loves them all. But I'm not about to go see him in the hospital and say, man, if you just had more faith. Well, there must be some sin in your life. That is the worst possible thing you could say, and it's presumptuous because you know nothing about them. Trust God. I thoroughly discount as unbiblical the message that God wills that everyone should be healed we're healthy and wealthy and prosperous all the time. I have not found it to be so, and I find such verbiage to be in diabolical and diametric opposition to Scripture. Paul was released, verse 24 reminds us, did get to visit these precious friends of his again, but sent Epaphroditus back home so they could love on him and encourage him, even though his sickness was longstanding. Verse 29 ends this section this morning. It says, welcome him, Epaphroditus, in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help that you could not give me. You couldn't be here in person, but Epaphroditus was. What a loving and gracious and, and gentle man he was, a, a man of genuine Christian love, a man filled with the Holy Spirit of God and the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, and peace and patience. He defended others, and he looked out for other people's interests. Let me just close with a reminder of what I've already said. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Give it in to God. Give in to God. Let him work in, on, and through you. Let him speak to you through his word. That means you have to be in it. Through prayer, through praise and worship, God wants to use you mightily. And I'll tell you what, every time God uses you, the result is always joy. It's always joy. God, when God does something neat and cool in your life, there's a grin on your face you can't just wipe off. It's just there. The joy of the Lord shall be your strength, Nehemiah told the people in his generation. It is still true today. But the second thing that I get out of this morning's teaching is, is how we do our service to the Lord is just as important, perhaps more important, than what we do for the Lord. Attitude. Your heart, your mind about a situation. Like when Kathy this morning said, Would anybody, is there anybody in the congregation this morning that can just hold a baby? That was an opportunity for you to serve. For you to, to come up with some joy that God wanted to plant in your heart. Not make excuses, well, I'm not, I'm not good with babies. If you're not a mom, nobody's good with babies, but that doesn't mean I can't hold them. You, you won't drop them, just cradle the little baby and go, it is not difficult. A guy can do this. Guys, watch. This is not hard. This is not hard. Rub their fuzzy little head. Okay? They love that stuff. So guys can do that. Guys should be leading by example in this church, not leaving it up to the women to do everything. Just say amen. Now you know your assignment, men. Do it. Next time we ask for somebody to go back and hold babies, I want 50 men to stand up and all make a beeline for the back door. And I'll call 49 of you back, but you need to be willing. So what's my closing admonition? Man up, buttercup. 
You're called to be a servant. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? We give you opportunity after opportunity in this church, but there are a thousand opportunities at work and at Walmart and places of attainment. There's a thousand other places, but Paul and Timothy, Epaphrodites, man, they are such wonderful examples of selfless, servant-minded, humble, joyful men because they imitated the example of Christ. They wanted to please him. They didn't get tired of, of serving him. For them, it was their highest privilege. They, so Paul encourages us there should be a different demeanor to our lives than was there before we got saved. And Paul writes all these encouraging words uh, while he's under house arrest. None of us are under house arrest. At a time where his country had been overrun with Romans and they were under the boot of oppression. Why can't we do that in a free America? They're doing it in Ukraine. They're gathering together. They're praying. They're seeking the face of God. What's our excuse? God wants to talk to you. He just needs you to listen. Open the book. Pray. Worship. Let go. Let God. He's got this. He's got this. I want you to be praying for me uh, this week. Uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 is not meant to terrorize anybody, but... I want you to pray that if God so instructs me, I, I want to just tell you what's going to happen in the near future. I've already told you that Russia will invade Ukraine. He's not going to stop there. He has globalist intentions. He is imperialistic by nature. He wants to reunify the old Soviet Union. He is a man who is hungry for power and increasing power. I don't believe you'll stop there in the next easiest nations to take over the three Baltic states, Estonia and, and Latvia and Lithuania up in the north, up against the Baltic Sea. Pray for me. If God leads me there, I'll, I'll take you through Ezekiel 38, 39. Feel free to read ahead. Ask any questions. You can call me anytime here at the church. Leave a message. I'll get back to you just as fast as I can. I'll answer any questions you have. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you this. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon, and the world will get worse before it gets better. 